think, well, it's a bit different up here, not having a lectern. I've got nothing to hide behind, no security blanket. Oh, he's going to give me a security blanket, turn around that way. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> You're going to sit on it, no? Okay, welcome to um, the last week of Missions Month. Um, we are... Um, we've been talking about missions for the month of May, um, and um, we're doing this last session. So, um, the first slide here, I think, we got the first slide? I can see it there, but I can't see it at the front. Here we go. So, missions has actually changed a lot over the last 200 years, hasn't it? This coffin represents what missionaries used to do 200 years ago. They used to pack their belongings in the coffin because they knew they were never coming home. They knew that they would need that coffin. In fact, in between 1790 and 1850, 19 out of every 20 missionaries died within the first two years of going to Africa. So they took their coffins with them. Next slide. Today, missions is done a bit different. Malcolm and I evolved in running the nation's course, and this is how we do missions on Zoom at the moment. Um, we're the principals of the nation's course, and we're also the course leaders, and we're running a course right at this time. Um, and these are our participants, and they look a little bit different to how missions looked 200 years ago as well. We have, um, we have myself and Malcolm at the top there, and then we have Joel, and um, below Malcolm is his wife Joy. They're from the Philippines, and they're working in Thailand. We have Benji and Iris, and they are also from the Philippines, and they're working in Thailand. But then we have Rhea, and she's, she's British, and she's working in Indonesia. And we have um, Carlos in the middle there. He's Brazilian, and he's working in the United Arab Emirates. We have Levis and his wife Winnie, and they are... Uh, from Kenya, and they've moved from one part of Kenya to another part of Kenya, and they're sharing the gospel cross-culturally within their own country. And so it goes on. I'm not going to go through them all, but we have a, a Nepalese couple who are working in a different part of Nepal from what they're familiar with and planting churches there. All these people are working cross-culturally, even though they might be working within their own uh, national borders. So missions looks a bit different these days than it did 200 years ago. We're doing this because we did the hard yards. We went ourselves to Indonesia, as most of you all know, and we spent five years on the field. And now we train and equip these missionaries um, to be able to work cross-culturally. And we will be meeting together with these people and last year's cohort, um, hopefully in Thailand, later this year. Next. So over the month of May, we've been looking at gospel renewal. And this morning, we want to look at empathy. We've looked at 
uh, gospel renewal and what that means. And it's been interesting to hear the different voices of people as they've come up and they've shared what gospel renewal means to, to them. For us, gospel renewal is something that happens when we approach each other, um, we approach that other person with an attitude of empathy. There are people with different worldviews all around us. Cultural difference just doesn't just happen when we cross borders. It also happens when we cross generations, when we cross socio-economic groups, when we even cross the street. People live by different stories. We live by different stories. At the core of every person is a narrative or story by which they see the world around them. That story influences how they see what's good in the world and how they see what is wrong with the world. It influences the values that we have, such as here in New Zealand, we have a value of justice and fairness, particularly European Kiwis I'm talking about. It's in our DNA. From the very start when people came to New Zealand, they were escaping a class system. And so fairness and justice is part of our values as Kiwis. Other cultures have different values. They have different histories. They have different ways of seeing the world. Some want freedom from fear. Like many African cultures who want freedom from the spiritual forces that influence their lives. Some cultures are about avoiding shame. The fear of being caught and bringing shame on their family and on themselves. Some cultures are concerned about impurity. And we'll see that in the biblical story that we'll look at very soon. Um, Hinduism and Islam and Judaism are all concerned with purity and keeping away from impurity. So as followers of Jesus, we live in God's story. Us here, when we follow Jesus, we become part of God's story in the world. It is our very core, the story of God. He's taken our guilt, but he's also taken our shame, he's made us clean, and he's taken away all our fears. So empathy is seeking to understand somebody else's story. It does not come from simply identifying. Can you show the picture? Thanks. It doesn't come from simply trying to identify with what we see around us. It takes an emotional connection, and it is about understanding the other person's local worldview. It is the ability to see what other people that what another person does or says and understand how it makes sense to them, even if it doesn't make sense to me. It's the ability to see how our actions and words are interpreted by other people. It's looking through their eyes, as the picture shows. Thanks. Next slide. Oh, sorry, back one. Thank you. Beautiful. 
Okay, so after the last, over the last three weeks, Colin has shared us some of the things that the Baptist Missionary Society wanted us to know. Um, and, and we couldn't agree more with what has been said. Um, it's very much what we teach at the Nations Course. These things, mutual humility, listening, respectful relationships, they are vitally important for building strong relationships, for understanding another person's worldview. Humility, mutual humility, says our way is not necessarily the best way. Listening, we seek to understand by listening, by really seeing what another person is about. And we want to have respectful relationships, not paternalism, not back to that, our way is the best way. We seek to understand by listening and learning to the other person. It is helpful to, un and in that process, it is helpful to understand our own culture and to understand who we are so that we can understand the other person. Because if we don't understand our culture, we can't understand someone else's culture. So I'm going to tell you a story. So imagine, if you will, that in New Zealand, in our culture, from the time of the very first people um, to today and to all the people in the future, everybody that was ever born was born with two legs, two arms, a mouth, a nose, two eyes, and a pair of sunglasses. Now, these sunglasses, don't look at the rim, Look at the lens, they are yellow. It might be hard for you to see under these lights, but they're yellow lenses. The colour is important. No one has ever thought it was strange that the sunglasses were there because they've always been there. They are part of the human body. Everybody has them. What makes these glasses yellow? Well, it's uh, the values, the attitudes, the ideas, beliefs, and assumptions that New Zealand people have in common. Everything that Kiwis have seen, learnt, or experienced are filtered through these glasses and into the brain. The yellow lenses then represent the attitudes, the beliefs, the values that are our Kiwiness. Okay, so thousand mile, thousands of miles away, in Thailand, for example, from the time the first people were born to today and all the people that will be born in the future, they will have two legs, two arms, a mouth, a nose, some eyes, and a pair of blue sunglasses. The lenses are blue. So, the colour of the lenses is blue. No one has ever thought it strange that everybody has these glasses. And they've always been there. They're part of the human body. Everyone has them. Everyone. Everything that the Thai people see and learn and experience is filtered through the blue lenses. Okay, we have an intrepid Kiwi traveller. And this traveller is smart enough to know that if he really wants to experience Thailand, 
he needs to get himself a pair of blue lensed glasses. So when he arrives in Thailand, he puts on his glasses and he experiences the Thai culture. Everything he does and sees, he's trying to look through these blue lenses. He spends two months there and he feels that he has truly experienced their, their, the Thai beliefs, the Thai culture, the Thai values. And he has true empathy with that culture. And when he gets home, he declares to everybody he sees that the Thai culture is green. And what's happened? He's forgotten to take off his yellow glasses and he's seen the blue and the yellow together and he's got green. So the moral of the story is that if we really want to understand, if we really want to empathise with somebody else, we need to have the ability to take off our own yellow lenses so that we can truly see another person's values and beliefs and life and understand their story. So how can we take off these yellow lenses? How do we take them off? The more we understand our own culture, the more we understand what these yellow lenses represent, what they are, the more we know about that, it means that they can come, become lighter and lighter so that we see less and less yellow and more and more blue. Perhaps we can never fully take off our yellow lenses because it is so much part of us. But by learning about what these represent, we can know more about another culture. And that's what Malcolm's going to share, some examples now of our values and some other values. Apologies for my croaky throat. Um, I, we're on the, uh, uh, the mend for, for some time. We continue to test negative, but um, it's been a lingering um, um, cough, uh, so apologise for the voice. Anyway, as Wendy was saying, um, to understand our own yellow lenses, we, it does well when we study cultural differences. And there are about 10 different cultural distinctives that authors and sociologists in this area have studied and identified. Things like time or task orientated, um, or task and event orientated, the, their attitudes to time, as I say. Whether it's a high context or low context, these are what form part of our cultural intelligence. But two I wanted to highlight today is this idea of power distance and individualism. Now, power distance, let me explain briefly, and I'll show you a couple, I'll illustrate with a couple of examples. The um, 
my notes do strange things when you put it in your pocket, and <laughs> the font's gone funny, but that's all right. So power distance, this refers to the degree of inequality that exists and is accepted between people with and without power. So a high power distance score, if you like, indicates that a society accepts an unequal, a hierarchical distribution of power, and that people understand their place in the system. In terms of accountability, leaders in high-power distance countries are hardly accountable for their actions. And what they do is leaders distribute power to family, friends, and their allies. Conversely, in low-power distant countries, um, leaders are required to justify their, um, their position by merit. Let me give an example. Now, this example, I'm not sure whether it's made up or whether it really happened, but it still makes the point. Jacinda Ardern was on her way from Government House to a Cabinet meeting at Parliament. She was running a little early, so she thought she'd stop for her favourite snack, donuts, at the local bakery. As she pulled in and the, her security jumped out with her, she saw there was a bit of a queue. But what does she do? She's third in line. She waits in line for her turn to get her order of donuts, maybe to bring some for Grant Robinson and the crew there at the cabinet meeting. Anyway, as, the, as she approaches the counter, the, the, the attendant says, good morning, Jacinda, will it be the usual today? And she says, yes, and off she goes. Okay, you see that's an example of low power. Now in Thailand, to contrast that, if you've ever been to Thailand, the king is really, really important. In fact, so important that if you go to the movies, you as a foreigner are expected to stand at six o'clock every time, at every showing of every movie, to stand, and there's a, a two-minute piece to the king that you're supposed to honour. One of the things you should never, ever do is if you're at an official place like a border or the police station or something like that, and a coin rolls out of your pocket and rolls on the floor, never, ever jump on it and stamp on it because you're stamping on the king's head. You can literally, people have been put in jail for that. That's the difference between power distance in New Zealand, where we have a very low power distance, where we can call uh, our prime minister by her first name, and Thailand, where the king is so revered that you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't even, um, you know, you just, you just treat him with so much respect. Um, let me just give another quick example. You remember last year we talked about my, uh, my friend, Sheka Sipa, and he, he um, many of you gave generously when he put an appeal to help with his mushroom farm. Just a quick report is that he's doing well. Uh, within two weeks, he'd built that facility, and I've seen pictures now of, of the mushrooms growing, and he's selling, and he's doing very well. Uh, only just last month, he led nine people to baptism, and him and his wife are both reaching out to the uh, Odisha people in that part of the Hindu people. But in all his communication to me, and if you want to see some photos, I have some photos on my phone. But in all his communication to me, he always calls me sir. It's good morning, sir. Good day, sir. Hello, sir. And, and that's his power distance culture coming through. Do I try and change that? Well, I might want to, but I don't, out of respect for him. When I met him, you know, I would like to have caught, said, no, just call me Malcolm. Uh, you know, let's just be mates. But that makes him uncomfortable. And so I, I live with that. It's in order to honour him, I let him call me sir. Okay? 
Uh, it's not that I, I, I take that to, the, to an extreme and lord it over him, but I allow him to operate in his comfort zone of his high power distance culture of his Indian culture. The second one up there is individualism. Now, in individualistic cultures, people are considered good if they are strong, self-reliant, assertive, and independent. And this contrasts with collectivist cultures where characteristics like being self-sacrificing, dependable, generous, and helpful to others are of greater importance. In individualistic societies, people are only supposed to look after themselves and their direct family. But in collective societies, people belong to an in-groups and they take care of them in exchange for unquestioning loyalty. Again, an example. There's two sons and their dads. One son and his father live in Thailand, the other in New Zealand. The son in Thailand lives in Bangkok. He's 18. He's had his license for a couple of years, and he wants to upgrade from, uh, I can't think of a, a, a lowly model, but, you know, a basic model, and he spots a red sports car in the equivalent of the trade me online. So he says to his dad, Dad, you know, I've had that car for uh, two or three years now. I'm ready to upgrade. I've spotted a red sports car. I'd really like a sports car. You know, it goes so fast and it looks really cool. What do you think, Dad? And his dad says, well, he says, I understand. He says, I felt the same way when I was your age. But do you know, I've read some research recently and yellow Volvos, particularly an SUV, are a lot safer. They've got a much higher safer rating. You know, the SUV would suit you well. You know, you, I know you're into cycling. You could put your, your cycle on the top with a couple of mates. And that probably would be the better choice than the red sports car. Why don't you go away and have a think about it? In New Zealand, the young lad in Hamilton, he says to his dad, he says, Dad, I've been thinking about this car that I've had. You know, that old... Toyota Yaris, it's now 13 years old. I'd like to get a red sports car. I've seen one in the paper. It's a really good price. It looks really cool, Dad. Goes fast. And uh, what do you think? And his dad says, well, I've done some research. And I've just read that actually a yellow Volvo are much safer, particularly an SUV. And besides, you could get your surfboards on that and take it out to Raglan for surfing. Why don't you consider a yellow Volvo? People can see you. Have a think about that. What happens? What's the outcome, do you think? Well, the Thai lad, he thinks about it for a couple of days. And the next thing his dad sees him, he's bought the yellow Volvo. And his dad says to him, that's my boy. I'm proud of him. In Hamilton, a couple of days later, the Kiwi boy, he thinks about it overnight. What does he do? He goes out and buys the red sports car. And his dad says to himself, he says, that's my boy. I'm proud of him. Because he did exactly, he, he, he honoured the individualistic character, um, society. He did, he thought for himself, he weighed up at it, and he made, a, he made his own call. And he bought the red sports car. So that's two different outcomes illustrating the difference between an individualistic and a collectivist society. You see, understanding these cultural distinctives helps us to understand our own culture and those of different cultures. 
and leads us toward greater and deeper empathy with our fellow human beings. How does Jesus do empathy? There's a beautiful picture. Uh, We're going to look at Luke 13, verses 10 to 17. Uh, Next click, thanks. And this picture is by Barbara Swartz, and I think it illustrates, sorry, back one just to the picture. Oh, it's not coming through. Oh, it's a shame. Never mind. There's a beautiful picture, and um, I'll describe it a little bit in a minute. So let's hear the scripture. Jesus heals a crippled woman. From Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Now this is a normal thing to do for a Jewish rabbi to, be, to go to the, the synagogue on the Sabbath... Um, Jesus is following the customs of the culture. And just then appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. So this woman enters the synagogue. This is the domain of men. She is unclean. She has bent over I probably can't even bend as far as the Bible indicates that she was bent over. And she had been bent over like that for 18 years. She's probably an outcast. She is identified as having a spirit that has caused her pain and humiliation. She is forced into the most humble position for 18 years. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, You are released from your weakness. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. The scripture doesn't actually say, but Jesus possibly stops what he's saying in the middle of of speaking at the synagogue, and he sees this woman. He saw her. Now, keeping the Sabbath is important. This is a religious principle derived from the very law of God. And he does the unexpected. He stops. He enters her world. It's all wrong. People are caught off balance, especially the synagogue leader, as we'll see in a moment. It's the wrong person, it's the wrong place, it's the wrong time. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured and not on the Sabbath day. So the synagogue leader, he's disturbed by what Jesus has done. He says to the crowd, he doesn't say to Jesus, he says to the crowd, because the synagogue is a place where debate happens, where the rules are actually set, where they're changed, where they're enforced. And he says to the crowd, what, would one, what does one day make a difference? She could come tomorrow and that would be okay for her to be healed. But this is the Sabbath. It's the wrong time. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, 
Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? Can you hear those words, 18 long years? He adds that word long. We don't know how he knew that it was 18 years. Did he ask her or did he have a word directly from God? But can you hear the empathy, the compassion in those words, 18 long years? He's stopped what he's doing and he's entered his world, in her, her world. The picture that I, that I had um, was a picture of her bent over and Jesus is bent over meeting her exactly where she is. It's a beautiful picture. What was more important to Jesus was the way in which she was healed, the way in which it was done, that he met her in her place where she was, right there in the synagogue on the Sabbath. For Jesus, it was the right place, and it was the right time, and it was the right person. When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things being done by him. So the crowd take Jesus' argument that even an ox or a donkey can be untied. Why can't this woman be, be healed after 18 long years? They take his argument and they side with him. They make a ruling. They potentially change the culture of that synagogue. The crowd decide and they praise God. Um, they, they decide that it is right that she is healed. He said, therefore... Therefore, this joins what follows to the story of the healing of the bent-over woman. Therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what should I compare it? It is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. What? Did you say mustard seed? This is also surprising. Again, it's dissidence. It's all wrong. In the Old Testament, the symbol that is used is the cedar or the oak that grows up large and big and then all the, all the birds come and nest in it. It's from Daniel 4 and Ezekiel 31 as well as others. But here we have the lowly mustard seed, common, common as. We used one of the most common spices used in the world. Used every day, planted in the garden. And normally the mustard seed grows into a tree or, or a plant or a bush. And it's normally only about four feet high, shorter than I am. Sometimes it can grow to 12 feet high in, in extraordinary circumstances. But Jesus uses this lowly mustard seed, this common mustard seed, everyday mustard seed, and changes the picture. He restories, he reimagines that mustard seed to be a big, massive tree that the birds come and nest in. 
he re-envisages the mustard seed. And again he said, to what should I compare the kingdom of God? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. This also is surprising. Leaven, using yeast as an example, well, he had just used it in chapter 12 to say, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. He had just used it as a negative example. And remember that the prized bread was the unleavened bread. That was the ceremonially clean bread, the one with no leaven that they used in the Passover and that they celebrated with what what God has done. So to use leaven, this common everyday thing again, and and a peasant woman also is surprising. To use a, a woman that has to make her own bread as an example, again, it is surprising, even shocking for the Jewish audience. And she makes enough bread for a whole village probably about 150 people, not just her own peasant household. And so the kingdom of heaven is like that. So Jesus is telling the people at the synagogue and us today that the kingdom of God springs up from surprising places and in surprising ways, like a mustard seed becoming a tree that the birds of the air nest in, and the mundane, slightly suspect leaven that feeds the whole village. It doesn't always follow the patterns that we expect. It bursts forth in mysterious and unorthodox ways. The kingdom of God is made present and Satan is expelled, even in the seemingly inconsequential acts as the restoration of the ill woman who was raised up to live uh, and had lived on the margins of society. Next. <coughs> oh, Sue, excuse me, microphone. For the leader of the synagogue and the crowd of people, Jesus asked them to reimagine the coming of the kingdom of God. The synagogue leader thought that he knew how the kingdom of God would look, but he needed humility. He thought it all, he had it all defined, he had it all wrapped up as to what the kingdom should look like, but he needed to listen. He thought the crowd would back him. He needed respectful relationships. And he wanted things done how they were always done. He needed empathy. J. Moon says that empathy means we surrender the idea that our way of presenting the gospel should make sense because it's the way we understand it. We need to surrender the idea that our way of presenting the gospel should make sense because it's the way we understand it. It's easy to consider that the ways we think, act, and believe are the best It's easy to measure others' beliefs and behaviours against our understanding of the world, our own story of how things work. And this creates barriers to sharing the gospel. Empathy deconstructs those barriers 
by allowing us to enter into the perspective of others so that we see the world through their eyes. So what does this mean in practice? Well, for our Filipino pastors, Benji and Iris, planting a church in Thailand, it means that they need to think about what that church should look like. And what it should not look like is a Filipino church planted in Thailand. It should look like a Thai church. For our Brazilian man, Carlos, seeking to disciple people in the United Arab Emirates, he needs to think about what should a Christian look like there. They will look different from a Brazilian Christian. They will see, they will have different concerns, they will have different views of what sin is, they have, will have different rules around family relationships. For our Australian lady, Amy, who um, is working caring for teenage mums in Bolivia, what does that look like? What does discipling look like for her? Certainly it would be different from how it would look in Australia. They have different values, a different view of the world. And I could go on for our Nepalese couple, Santosh and Meena, and our Indian couples, Shibu and Jocelyn, who have been brought up in a really set way of how it is to be a follower of Jesus. How do they take that to a different part of their country? Where their ways are strange and different and don't make sense. How do they present the good news in a way that brings renewal but fits with the needs and way of life of the people they're serving? Last slide, thanks. So gospel renewal is surprising. It happens in ways we don't expect. It interrupts and it listens. It accepts the other person as different from me, with different fears and concerns. What does gospel renewal look like in this place, or in that place, or in that place? And it's going to be different in each. Change needs to come. Renewal needs to come. And those changes come with a come about with a changed imagination, with a reimagining, with a restoring. But how can we bring change if we don't understand where the person is coming from in the first place? The kingdom of God springs from common local garden plants. We need to understand the local. It comes from slightly suspect yeast common and local illustrations. The bent over woman, crippled, Jesus enters into her world. He changes her story and he changes the story of the people around her. He reimagined the idea of the kingdom of God. He gave them a new story to live by. We can't reimagine or restory a person's view um, of the world without first taking off our own glasses and putting on their glasses. Okay, I'll invite the 
the team up. Thanks.